0: Grab your Bible and open it to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. We're going to be moving from verse 11 down through verse 22 this morning. And you will remember what we said at the beginning of the summer. We said that it is really important that as we grow up in God, that we understand his agenda is to mature us to the point where we begin to take his word on its terms Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when we're young and when we're growing, we tend to look at our circumstances or our situation, and then we go to God's word for comments on our circumstances or situation. That's fine. That's what we do when we're young. But as we mature, what God wants to do is move us to the point where we begin to listen to what he wants to talk about Instead of what we want to talk about. And that means that we begin to receive His word on His terms. That's what adults do, they deal with those realities beyond the moment. And so as we grow in God, God wants to bring us to the place where we begin to to receive his word on its terms, to let him talk to us about what he knows is most important instead of what we think is. And and the way you do that is you begin to do what we call expository Bible study. And that's what we're doing this summer, walking right through Paul's letter to the Ephesians verse by verse. And as I said this morning, we're in verses 11 through 22. Let me um, begin by asking a question. No show of hands on this one, but uh, how, how many of you are or know somebody who's superstitious? Probably a fair amount of us know somebody who are superstitious. Maybe some of us are superstitious. A lot of superstition is just kind of silly and funny. It's just kind of not important and, you know, it's stuff that we kid about and joke about, knock on wood, that kind of an idea. I did a little Google this week, though, about superstitions around the world and you'd be surprised at how many and how weird are some of the superstitions in our world. For example... Did you know that in 1933, the government of Syria made yo-yos illegal? Did you know that? Still is. Do you know why? There's a superstitious belief in Syria that if a lot of people use yo-yos at the same time, it will cause a drought in the country. I'm not kidding. So, you know, if you're planning on a vacation in Syria, probably not the first place you want to pick, by the way. But if you are, um, you know, don't take your yo-yo, something to think about. In Rwanda, did you know there is a widespread superstitious belief that if a woman eats goat meat, she'll grow a nice, big, thick beard. Hey, there's a thought. Ladies, you want to get on the whole beard thing? Just hook yourself up, some goat meat, right? According to Rwandan superstition, you'll be down the road. In central Russia, kind of east of the Ural Mountains there, there's a superstitious belief that if a bird poops on your head, it's good luck. Don't ask me how they got there, all right? That's a belief. Bird nails your neighbor. You go, hey, that's terrific, (laughs) you know, good (laughs) luck. You might say, hey, it's terrific, even if you don't think it's good luck. But anyway, in Korea, there's a really weird one. Did you know that in Korea, there's a superstitious belief that if a a pregnant woman eats asymmetrical fruit, it will cause birth defects? So if you eat a strawberry that's bigger on one side than the other, the belief is, superstitiously, that that'll cause birth defects. I know I have the same blank look on my face that you have on yours, but there it is. In Turkey... There's a superstitious belief that parents should never jump directly over their children because if you do, you will stunt their growth and they will grow up to be very short people. (laughs) I can't explain it, all right? Pretty much rules out kids camp in Turkey because everybody's jumping over everybody, but that's the superstitious belief. A couple more. In Hungary, uh, there's a superstitious belief that if you're a young bride in your first year of marriage, you shouldn't sit at a corner table in the restaurant because if you do, you'll never be able to have kids. Some of you are thinking, I want to find the nearest corner table and sit in it, but that's a superstitious belief. In in the city of Seattle, there is a wild superstitious belief that someday the mariners will be good. How can you explain that, (laughs) right? I mean, there's no reason to believe that, but people do, you know, superstitiously. It's not real. So, you know, superstitions can be silly and funny, but you know as well as I do that, that superstitions can also be deadly and serious. You know, as a matter of fact... In the African Congo, more than 1,100 people have died just since August of last year from a horrible disease. It's a hemorrhagic fever called Ebola. Now, Now, here's the thing. Ebola can be cured by a simple vaccine. It's been wiped out in large parts of our world, Africa in particular, with a simple vaccine. But... In the Congo, there is a superstitious belief that this vaccine also causes infertility. It doesn't. Just look at the rest of the continent. But there's a superstitious belief in it. And so as a consequence, there are actually gangs, tribal gangs, that travel around attacking health health workers and health clinics who are trying to give the vaccine for Ebola. Many have lost their lives because of a superstitious belief. Not the least of which are the 1,100 people who have died since last August alone because of a superstition about the vaccine. The same kind of thing is happening in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I don't know if you know this, but polio, a horrible disease, it cripples for a lifetime, has been eradicated in 98% of the world. But there are large tribal areas in Afghanistan and Pakistan where they can't eradicate it because there is a superstitious belief among the tribes in those regions that it is a secret plot of the United States government to sterilize tribal children in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And as a consequence, they won't allow their kids to be vaccinated for polio. In 2009 alone, 1,600 children came down with polio, permanently crippled for life because they think you've got enough time to carry out a plot to sterilize their children. You see how superstition can be deadly. As a matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, a clinic in Pakistan was attacked by a mob. Two teenage girls who were vaccinating children were murdered and the clinic burned down. Why? Because they believed that those two teenage girls were agents of the U.S. government trying to sterilize their children. You see how serious superstition can be superstition is a big deal in fact in your bible in the old testament it's called idolatry it's a belief in a god who isn't real or in a spiritual dynamic that isn't real and it can be deadly serious when it controls our behavior because of that jesus made it a point to confront it wherever he found it in fact his favorite saying was i tell you the truth he often predicated what he taught with that phrase. And what he was doing was distinguishing between superstitions and the truth about who God is. That's why the Lord said, for example, in John chapter 8, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from superstitions, among other things. Free from their deadly and serious power. They can control our behavior. As a matter of fact, if you want to know an illustration of how powerful they can be, think about this. Jesus wasn't betrayed and murdered by the atheists or the foreign governments or criminal gangs. He was betrayed and murdered by superstitious people who thought of themselves as religious people, who thought of themselves as defending the truth about God. That's who murdered him. Why? Because of their superstitious beliefs, which he relentlessly contradicted. Following Jesus, friends, doesn't make us uh, mean adopting a new set of superstitions. It means doing away with them. And that's important because, let me tell you something, e- e- even people who want to follow Jesus can fall into the trap of being controlled by superstitions or of believing in them. For example, right, let's just test ourselves here for a second. No raise of hands, but how many of us just sort of think in the back of our heads that if we're confronted by some kind of demonic behavior, it's powerful to hold up a wooden cross, yeah probably that's Hollywood friends it's nowhere in your Bible matter of fact if you can find that verse email it to me that'll be a quest you can spend the rest of your life on because it's not there it's a superstition it's made up from nothing some people believe that if you apply oil to somebody you're praying for it increases the power of the prayer it's a superstition Nothing could be further from the truth. When James in chapter 5 talks about calling for the elders of the church to be anointed with oil and that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, first of all, notice it's the prayer that makes them well. Second of all, understand that the oil isn't to be treated superstitiously. In that context, oil was medicine. So what does the scripture say? Take your medicine and be prayed for. The prayer will heal you, maybe through the medicine, maybe through a miracle. But lots of us superstitiously cling to the idea that oil makes the prayer more powerful. As a matter of fact, a church that Ron and I served in, uh, nearby in North Idaho, not in, but nearby, had people designated to walk around the sanctuary during worship with spray bottles spraying oil into the air in order to make worship more anointed. You can find all kinds of things in Northern Idaho if you look around, you know, and that was just one of them. (laughs) It's a superstition. And there's lots of them. Like, some people think that worship summons God's presence. No, it doesn't. That's a superstition. Worship helps us become aware of God's presence. He was always there. In him, we live and move and have our being. Worship makes us, helps us become aware of his, but we can go on and get the idea. We can fall into superstitions as well, and it is a very specific superstition that the Apostle Paul is going to address in these 11 verses in Ephesians chapter two. So let's read through them and then we'll take a few minutes to break them down. Some of us are thinking, hey, usually we do communion between the third and fourth song in worship and we haven't done it yet. Did Pastor Greg forget? No, I didn't forget. We're gonna come back to communion at the end because it goes with what we're talking about. So Ephesians chapter two, beginning with verse 11. Let's listen to what the scripture says to us. Let's take God's word on its own terms. Paul is writing and he says this. Therefore, remember... That word's a big deal. We're going to come back to it. Remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, that's most of us, if not all of us in the room, not born Jewish, but Gentile. Formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that's Jews distinguishing themselves from Gentiles. And notice what Paul says parenthetically, what they're talking about is what's done in the body by the hands of men, not not God's covenant. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. Through the blood of Christ, not through circumcision, not through Jewishness, but through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. Take note of that. What two is he talking about? Jew and Gentile. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, that is in Jesus, one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, past tense, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Notice what he's talking about here. He's talking about our tendency to be superstitious about Jewishness, superstitious about Israel. He's saying, stop that. And as if he hasn't been clear enough, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. In Him, the whole building composed of both Jew and Gentile. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling, in which God lives by his spirit. Now, friends, this is adult stuff. This is grown-up stuff. But this is the kind of stuff that God wants us to understand because of our tendency to be superstitious. So let's break this down for a little bit and understand, first of all, the big idea in this passage is that Jews and Gentiles have been made one. You can underline that in verse 14. They've been made one in Christ and that that was God's intention all along. Verse 15, Paul says his purpose was to create one new man out of the two. Yet very often, well-intended believers superstitiously insist that the two are separate. That there is some advantage in championing Jewishness for its own sake. Nothing could be further from the truth. Read it for yourself. This superstition about Israel is exactly what steered Israel off course when Jesus came. They heard him talking against, teaching against this superstitious belief that Jewishness matters in a relationship with God, and as a consequence, were outraged and ultimately murdered him. It's still steering people off course today, but God's plan, as Paul is at pains to make clear, God's plan in Jesus is to make Jews and Gentiles into one people better than either. That's his plan. That's what he's up to. That's what he wants the believers at Ephesus to grasp. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you and I and Enumclaw to grasp. Let's note some broad things here. First of all, I told you we were going to come back to that word uh, remember. You see it in verse 11 and in verse 2. The word in English is a little weaker than the Greek word. The Greek word doesn't mean to remember in the sense of simply call something to your mind. It means to remember in the sense of to actively engage in remembering. It's a thing you do with your hands as well as your head. One way to put it is rehearse. So when Paul says remember, he has the idea of rehearsing an act kind of like we do with communion, kind of like we do when we gather one day in seven for worship. We are rehearsing and remembering something. And what is that something? It's our identity. We need to constantly, actively remember who we are in Christ in order to escape the power of superstition. And that's what Paul is writing to the Ephesians about. C.S. Lewis said famously, one of my favorite quotes, that, that Christian faith is the art of holding on to what your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. And we all have changing moods. What our reason is called to accept is that superstition about Jewishness or Israel isn't real, faith in Jesus is real both for the Jew and for the Gentile. And so what is Paul saying to us? He's saying, remember, rehearse who you are, your identity. I remember when I was uh, a boy in grade school and uh, my mom who had been divorced from my my biological father for some time, she remarried and, and my dad came into our family. Some would call him stepdad, I don't, he's my dad, he earned it. And when he came into my life and adopted us, I had to do something different that maybe not a lot of people do. And that was I had to learn to rewrite my name. You know, what do you learn in kindergarten or first grade? You learn to write your name, right? So I was learning to write Greg Seen, S-I-E-H-N. Well, now I was adopted. Now I had a new dad, so now I had to learn how to write Greg Dalton, different letters all over again when you're a kid. And I, I will never forget what it felt like to begin doing that and to learn that and to begin practicing that. Greg, oh, that's right, I have a dad now. I have a dad who wants me. I have a dad who will be there when I get home. I have, I have a dad, and he's given me his name. And I was learning to write my new name, and it was a powerful thing. In the same way, God calls you and I to remember and rehearse our identity over and over again, that it is in Christ, that it is through faith in Christ, because when we do that, we feel something he wants us to feel. We appreciate something he wants us to appreciate. Second, notice that that Paul draws a distinction in this passage between popular opinion. He talks about that done in the body by the hands of men. Popular Jewish opinion in that day was that if you wanted to enter into God's covenant, you had to be circumcised. Jesus came and said, no, (laughs) you have to receive me as your savior. They got outraged. They said, we have this superstition. He said, your superstition's wrong. We are called to let Jesus do that in our lives as well. To let Jesus contradict popular opinion. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of popular opinion out there that is contrary to what he says. We are called to let him contradict that, to let him push away those superstitions, identify them and set them to the side so that our faith, our confidence, our trust would be in him and him alone. Jesus makes popular opinion irrelevant. One of the popular opinions in his day was that Jewishness by itself can save you and bring you into a relationship with God. Jesus said, no, it can't. You're going to have to believe in me. You're going to have to receive me as your Savior. You're going to have to let go of your superstitions. Once upon a time, popular opinion was sure that the sun revolved around the earth and that the planet was flat and that African Americans weren't human and that women weren't smart enough to vote. And today, the popular opinion is that an unborn child isn't alive. Popular opinion is often wrong. And Jesus is the one who teaches us what's true as distinct from what's superstition. Do you ever go against popular opinion? This is part of the call that God has given us as his people, as believers in this world, is to swim upstream about some things. When was the last time you let Jesus call you to do that? When was the last time you let him change your mind about a superstition? I had a dear friend many years ago who, uh, good brother, still a friend, and, and he uh, disagreed with me on this Jewish thing. And I said, well, brother, let's get together and talk about it. And I said, bring your Bible. And he didn't because he wasn't prepared to talk about it from his Bible because it was a superstition. But what he did do was he brought me a book. He said, Pastor Greg, I want you to read this book because I think you're wrong about this and I think I'm right about it. And I said, well, gosh, can we talk Bible? No, I just want you to read this book. So finally, he left. And the great irony of that moment is I still have the book on my bookshelf. <laughs> The book he gave me was on my side, not his side. He hadn't even read it. He just picked it and brought it and thought it said one thing and it didn't say another. See, that's the power of superstition. It can prevent us from even thinking about what we think we are thinking about. It can prevent us from knowing what we don't know. And Paul is dealing with that tendency among the believers in Ephesus. Notice what he says. He says, you and me once weren't citizens of Israel, verse 12, but now we are. We once were foreigners, but now we're not. We weren't part of God's covenant of promise, but now because of Christ, we are. We were far away, but now we're near. Not because of Jewishness, but because of Jesus. Now understand, Understand, friends, Jewishness is incredibly significant because it is the context through which God reveals Christ to us. So there is a wealth of, to be gained from learning about this. And any serious student of God's word is going to take Jewish tradition and background and context seriously because you can't fully understand what Jesus is saying and doing unless you do. But it's no substitute for him. The whole point of it is to get us to him. Uh, Let me be very pointed. If you pray for Israel but hate Palestinians, you're missing the point. God created Israel to carry the good news of his love to the Palestinians. That's the whole point. And so to be superstitious about Israel is like being rescued from your third floor apartment by a fireman, and then when you get to safety on the ground, you thank the ladder. It was the fireman that used the ladder. And Paul wants the believers at Ephesus to let go of this superstition about Jewishness because it's only in Christ that we become God's people. In the Gospels, Jesus relentlessly applauded non-Jewish Romans, Samaritans, Greeks, anyone who would put their faith in him and relentlessly warned Jews who didn't believe that their Jewishness wouldn't save them. For example, in Matthew chapter 21, he said to a Jewish audience, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. John the Baptist, when he saw the crowds coming to him, said in Matthew chapter 3, these words, Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can make children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree, Jew or Gentile, that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, don't be superstitious. I could go on all morning about this, friends. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Romans 9, 6 to 9. I could go on and put you to sleep. Maybe you're already there. But I've learned that there is a reality to this thing called confirmation bias. Some of us, when faced with evidence to the contrary of our superstition, will simply say, I choose to believe my superstition. Don't do that. Let Jesus change your mind. Matter of fact, one of the tests that you can give yourself to say, hey, am I growing in my faith? is a really simple one. You just say, hey, when was the last time I let Jesus change my mind? Hmm. It was in 1983, and I'm glad he did. Well, guess what? Until you and I get home, he'll be teaching us and growing us and changing our minds because that's what fathers do with kids. That's what parents do with beloved children. That's what God is doing with us. Grasp this. Your faith and mine, and we're almost done this morning, belongs to Jesus personally and to him alone. That's why Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, right in front of you, he himself is our peace who has made the two one. There's no shortcuts to virtue through superstition. Israel and Jews need to be saved just like you and me. When Israel was living unrighteously, God used Babylon and Assyria and many other wicked nations to punish her. He has no favorites. Much faith today is nothing more than church-themed superstition or worse, politically-themed superstition. But Jesus comes to set us free from all that. And when we let him change our mind, we set aside superstition show you how far this can go, award-winning journalist Petra Resky is one of the world's leading authorities, if not the world's leading authority on the mafia, the real mafia. And in her book, The Honored Society, she writes how a strong so-called faith in God through Christ is almost a requirement to be a mobster. For example, Famous Sicilian mobster Marcello Fava, who was arrested a few years ago and imprisoned, explained to her during an interview, these are his words Before I murder someone, I always cross myself and pray. And here's my prayer Dear God, stand by me and make sure nothing happens to me. I would be a fool if I didn't pray before I murder someone. What? (laughs) What are you talking about? That's not faith, that's not real. That's complete superstition. You see how somebody who perceives themselves one way can really be nothing more than the sum of their superstitions. She goes on to write about top-level mafia boss Bernardo Provenzano, who, when arrested, police found five Bibles marked up with hundreds of his own personal study notes, stuff he just made up, and his home contained 91 sacred statues, 73 of them Christ figures bearing the inscription, "'Jesus, I put my trust in you.'" All this while he's running a worldwide racket of murder, extortion, human trafficking, and drug dealing. You say, how can he get there? Superstition will get you there in a hurry. Superstition will convince you that you've got the invisible realities right, when in fact you don't. His superstition will be his condemnation at judgment. Judgment. And so it will be for all who refuse to let their superstitions be changed by Jesus. That's what he comes to do is to change those. Church, understand, Paul wants the Ephesians to remember and rehearse that God did not choose Israel to be especially privileged in the sense of being his favorites. He chose Israel the way you and I choose godparents. Or, or the way we choose somebody to watch over our family if we have to be gone for a long time. He chose them for a mission. And remembering that is key to escaping the superstition that comes when we forget it. Listen to what God said to Abraham right at the beginning when he began to create Jewishness in the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter 12, it's in your Bible. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Yes, I will, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words... I'm calling you to a mission. I'm going to make you a people for the sake of other people. Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 49, verse 6. Speaking to Israel, he says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That is to the people who haven't heard yet. Paul says in verses 14 to 16 as a consequence for he himself Jesus is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulation. In other words God wants us to think of ourselves not first as Jews or Gentiles or Greeks or Romans or Americans or Chinese or country people or city people or even huskies or ducks or cougars hard as that is to let go of he wants us to think of ourselves as Jesus people as the people of this man the lord himself put it this way matthew chapter 5 verse 20 i tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the pharisees and teachers of the law you certainly not enter the kingdom how does our righteousness surpass the most jewish of all jewish people by faith in jesus by believing in him as our savior this is crucial to remember when we set those other identities aside we become something spiritual. When we set those other identities aside, an invisible reality comes to the surface in and through us, the reality of God. A cancer patient named Tony writes about how powerful it is when your identity changes. He says, the first time you park your car in the vast cold cavern of the underground parking garage at the special hospital, you feel very alone. And as you walk through the lobby with your manila envelope of x-rays and lab reports and notes from your regular doctor, you don't feel like part of the rest of the world. You're not them anymore. You're a cancer patient. But then, he says, you arrive on your ward and there's people everywhere, reading books, checking their phones, getting coffee, talking to each other, waiting patiently. And slowly you begin to realize, I'm not alone. Everybody here is just like me. That tired lefty professor over there. That tough-looking Latino contractor. That lesbian woman with the leather jacket. That sharp-dressed businessman, that truck driver, that guy with the military haircut. That African-American woman with a political slogan on her t-shirt. That guy with the cowboy hat and boots and a belt buckle as big as a cantaloupe. We're all sick. And we're all here to get healed we're dying of the same thing but we're here to get healed and so this strange country of cancer it turns out is the only real democracy and suddenly the hospital feels like a church should feel and we know we need God yeah see when your identity changes something spiritual happens someone wrote on Facebook this week I'm not going to forget it anytime soon The constant prayer of every true Christian is, Lord, have mercy on me, sir. Yeah. That's our identity. That's what makes us one. That's what he gives us in Christ. So Paul finishes. He says, verses 19 to 22, Consequently, to you and me, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household with Christ as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, as our identity changes and we become before anything else Jesus people, then God dwells in our midst. Then God happens among us, in us, and through us. Rehearsing our identity is what makes us into the temple of God. John said the same thing in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, when he said, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Quick story before we wind up. Rick Lawrence, in his book Skin in the Game, writes that when the Milpitas High School Orchestra plays Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, it's truly awful. Poor old Ludwig probably spins in his grave. But, he says, that downtrodden inner-city audience that every year hears the concert from the Milpitas High School Orchestra, that audience of single moms and recovering drug addicts and former felons and hard-luck immigrants and struggling people in a desperately poor part of California's toughest city, When the Milpitas High School Orchestra starts playing, they hear some of the greatest music ever composed. And their faces glow and they smile. And then he says, in the same way, the church is like that high school band playing the greatest music ever, usually quite badly. Somebody say amen. (laughs) And yet because the music is so great, it's heard in spite of our playing badly. Because... We keep rehearsing our identity because we keep saying we are the people of Jesus, because we keep remembering that it is through faith in Christ that we are made God's children. And this is so important that Paul says, hey, you guys, stop with the superstition. Put it away. It's nonsense. Focus instead on this man, Jesus. Put all your faith in him personally. The gospel is simple. Whoever is willing to receive him becomes... Israel, the people of God. Whoever is willing to believe in him becomes his people. Whoever is willing to remember and rehearse their identity allows him to be heard.